0: 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've been plugging through here. Paul has been talking about having sincerity of heart, seeking to please Jesus Christ. He wants to, again, uh, contrast the ministry that the Lord has given them and the nature of that ministry with some of what's happening in Corinth and some of the things that he was being accused of And he's in the middle of that discussion, ranging in a whole lot of different ways. And we have reached chapter or verse 12 of chapter 5, where Paul says this. We do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. So what, what Paul's talking about here is he's been talking about ministry. He's been talking about his own suffering. And yet the Lord strengthening him in the inner man, his hope in not the reward in this world, but the exceeding great weight of glory in the next. He's been talking about his hope of resurrection and life, of pleasing Jesus Christ and meeting him at the judgment seat. And he doesn't want to be misunderstood or to have these, again, these Corinthian believers think, and probably those that have been accusing him of these things, to think that he's boasting in himself, that he's so sincere of heart and he's so righteous and such and such. So he says again in 12, we don't commend ourselves again to you. And he used similar language in three one in chapter 4, verse 2, where he's saying like, oh, I'm not trying to talk myself up to you guys. That's, again, not what I'm doing here. He believed he didn't have to do that with them, but he wants to make sure. He says, but to give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who who boast in appearance and not in heart. So what he's saying is, all right, I'm not trying to boast that I'm this super spiritual person. But I do want you to see the contrast and for you, literally these Corinthians, to boast in the type of ministry that Paul was a part of. Not just him personally as a minister, but this is a ministry that is faithful to the work of the Holy Spirit, the excellency of God and not of the vessel itself, and particularly to give an answer for those who he's going to say, boast in appearance. He wanted the critics to know and the people that were not critics to know that they had very different, different ideas of ministry. What Paul was seeking to minister and how he ministered was very different than what these other individuals were seeking to minister and how they ministered. So Paul says he hadn't been given of the Lord to boast in appearance and not in the heart. His, his ministry was not given to the outward appearance of things. Certainly, literal human appearance is a part of it. But I think he's thinking more things along the lines of the human credentialing, the letters of credential that they would have had. Things like the religious rituals, the dietary law, circumcision, outward kind of spiritual acts. All these types of things that they would put on on the outward. Again, the last letter he wrote to the first Corinthians, they were boasting in their spiritual gifts. And then they were getting drunk at communion tables. They had covetousness. There was division. And he's saying, we're, we're not boasting in these outward things, but the reality of the heart. We're, we're not boasting in appearance. We want, and Paul wants his ministry to focus on showing the excellence of God through his own weakness, sincerity of heart, love to God, faith in eternal reward, a guileless ambition to please Jesus. Like this was the spirit of the ministry that Paul is talking about. And he's saying, other people are going to boast in these outward appearance of things. I, I want you to see this and you to boast in this. This is what you should be boasting in. A ministry that reflects these types of things, not the outward thing that's not real in the heart. And I think you can, even in our day and age, if you're a discerning believer, you can look at various ministries or ministers, and you should be able to tell this is a ministry that has the flavor or the spirit of Christ. If you're not sure how to do that, uh, read the Sermon on the Mount, look at Jesus Christ, and say, is this ministry, does it have the same character? Do I believe the apostles or Paul would have done that? Again, Paul had to rebuke them in 1 Corinthians. You guys are rich. You got everything. And he says, us apostles, we're hated. People despise us. We're persecuted. The the very spirit and flavor of their ministry was so different. But even in America, there's been plenty of times where uh, I've gone somewhere, or I've listened to somebody, or I've sat under a teaching, and... My heart connected to the individual because you could tell there's just a humble spirit there to love God or to please Him or to serve Him. I just think, man, I like that guy. I got to admit, when it, you know, I, I, I don't love the um, when they do conferences and stuff, they throw all the pictures up there of everybody. Uh, I'm confessing this, you know, it's, it's always about like the person, you know, but I do always like it when there's one picture of the dude that looks kind of bad. Because I'm like, I like that guy because he doesn't care about his picture. So that always, I always want to listen to that guy's session. It looks like it was like a taken from, you know, some school picture from like 40 years ago or something. I'm like, I like that guy. I want to listen to what he has to say. But there's, there's a certain flavor of ministry that Paul is trying to get across here. And he's, and you can tell when something is focused on appearance and performance or the heart. And Paul says, I want you to be able to boast in that. Not in me but in the reality of Christ's work and his ministry. So, he says in 13, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we're of sound mind, it's for you. Now, despite being one of the greatest Christian examples of humility in ministry and of calm sobriety of mind, Paul was slandered and labeled as crazy. He said, if we're beside ourselves, that means to be crazy. That if they thought he was nuts. And no doubt, because of his life and his emphasis, they were so different than the status quo. Paul was, if you're, thrown in jail, if you're beaten and thrown in jail and singing worship songs at midnight, people are going to think you're crazy. And there's going to be scenarios where some of the things Paul did, they might seem crazy even to us. So granted, there was something unique going on there. But in general, just for his simple obedience to the Lord and the type of ministry he lived out, it was different than the status quo and in direct conflict with many of these false teachers and other expressions. And that truly spiritual ministry did make him look a little crazy at times. As it will anybody else who wants to be obedient to Jesus Christ in the day and age that they live. You could take just about any Bible story David seemed a little crazy when he was running at Goliath. Joshua seemed crazy when he was marching around Jericho. Gideon seemed crazy when he's blowing horns and smashing, you know, waving stuff around. And like, you could just go through the Bible, and the disciples seemed crazy to leave everything that they had and follow this guy, Jesus, who had nothing. And to be in the best company, the Bible tells us, of Jesus himself in Mark 3:21, when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said, he is out of his mind. We know what Festus said about Paul in Acts 26, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus but speak the words of truth and reason. Anybody that's going to follow Jesus Christ in a day and age that doesn't follow Jesus Christ is going to seem a little crazy at times. Ironically, this guy Paul, who was accused of being crazy here, had the type of spiritual experience that he could have leveraged to exalt or glory in, but he purposely chose not to do that. He chose to make his moderation known to men. Any of these other teachers would have published the supernatural, the outward supernatural acts of their ministry. The miracles, the casting out of demons, the revival that happened places, the persecution they face, being stoned to death and raised back up, visions of paradise, demonic things sent to buffet him. Literal supernatural visions of Jesus Christ. Like all of those things would have been major lists on their credentials as to how spiritual they were. There's none of that here. Paul's just talking about, I want to make it my aim to please Jesus and have a good conscience when I stand before him one day. Uh, The excellency is not of us. It's of him. And it just shines through even in our weakness. And in the middle of all of that, they say he's out of his mind. So what Paul says is, all right, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If somebody's going to call me crazy, it's going to be because I'm doing what God wants me to do. Because I'm following his example. And he says, if we're of sound mind, it's for you. If people understand the soundness of our mind, if there's a calm, sober-minded understanding of what we're doing as Paul had he was very ordered he had a clear mind again even Festus was calling him crazy he said I'm not crazy I'm just stating the truth to you he he had that mind for he says for you not just for their benefit but also for their example so you can see this again Paul made his prayer and his heart known to God but his moderation known to men And I think we can bless God for this man, Paul, because there was probably no more clear-minded, humble ministry that ever happened on the face of the earth than what happened through this man. Because he could have leveraged all the other things. And he could have leveraged them in his self-defense, which is always tempting, right? When you know you're doing the thing the Lord wants you to do and people start criticizing you, it would be very easy to go back and say, yeah, but look at the outward things he did in my life. And Paul doesn't do any of that. He just says, okay, if I'm crazy, it's for God. If I'm sober minded, it's for you. We want you to see this, this example. Because this is who God is. This is what Christ did. This is what his apostles did. And this is the type of ministry that anybody's going to have if they follow him, whether it's large and public or personal. These things are going to happen to us. And it's a good example for us. Now Paul's going to give them a little bit, again, why he will do this. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul brings in the cross here. But the context can't be forgotten. Even many able commentators here, they forget. Paul is talking about ministry. So he's talking about the cross as an example and the highest ideal of the type of ministry he's talking about. Uh, He's not just trying to work out all our theological questions about what happened on the cross. That's not his context here. His context is, again, why he looks crazy doing the type of ministry that he's doing. And what he says is, because the love of Christ compels me. Talking about being a faithful minister of this new covenant. Well, it all started with what Jesus did. And Jesus is the purest and greatest example of the nature of this ministry and those who are followers of him. Because Jesus's nature was not to grasp for or act for himself. One died for all. not not for himself, for all, for everyone else. Paul says this is how it all got started. We live in a world with billions of people who consider themselves and their lives at the center of the universe, which is the basis of most of our problems, as we all did outside of Christ because there was nothing else, and as we still are challenged not to do even in Christ. Seeing this type of love in Christ, though, Paul was compelled. The idea in the word it could be restrained. It could be a couple different things. But he, he's been gripped by something here into this life of ministry that he's been describing through the love of Christ. Actually, the love of Christ, those direct words is only mentioned two other times in Scripture. You think it would be a lot more. The, the love of Christ is explained but called as the love of Christ. Only in Romans 8.35, where it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And again in Ephesians 3.19, where Paul says, To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what compelled Paul. He began to see and experience that. He loved us in giving his life for us at the cross, and that's always the first and foundational motive of our love to him and any life that we live for him. William Law, in his book, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, said this, the state of Christianity implies nothing else but an entire and absolute conformity to that spirit which Christ showed in the mysterious sacrifice of himself upon the cross. That's what Paul's saying. We can't do Christian life and ministry outside of the spirit of the person who started all of this. And where do we see that? In one who gave his life for all. How, how does Paul see the love of Christ working? One died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul's clearly thinking here about the life and death of Christ, pointing out his willingness to give his life so that others can live. And he says, rose again. That there's life beyond his death. And these are the things that work in our life. Christ died for all. He says that twice. He means that he died for, Christ died on behalf of, or Christ died in the place of all who were dead, who need life, which is every one of us outside of him. He's the one who has true life. Paul, again, isn't trying to work out all our systematic theology here. People want to get into the weeds, right? We can't limit the alls in this verse to the elect, and we can't expand the those to all of humanity, It's what it says it is. Paul says he died for for all, but those who live, that's that's a different group. They don't live the type of life that's outside of him. They live the type of life that he gives. Who he is. What he's like. Paul's asking, who did Christ die for? Then he's asking, who do we live for? What does that look like Peter would say Christ also suffered once for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit that's what happens to us we become alive in the spirit Christ Christ is this example he's the one who started this all and Paul says like we're not if if he died for all of us we who live we don't live to ourselves anymore I can't be a person who lives focused on my own appearance or how things relate to me or just me. If I'm following him, I have his spirit, the type of spirit that gave his life for everyone else. There's a famous story going off the cuff here, I don't know if I'll remember it exactly, about a guy, I believe, an artist named Steinberg, a couple hundred years ago in Dusseldorf, who was painting a picture of a gypsy girl who he saw on the street and just paid her to come in a couple times a week to be his model for this picture. And he had another picture of, uh, I believe it was going to be an altarpiece in the church of St. Jerome. And it was a picture of Christ on the cross. And this gypsy girl didn't know anything about Christ on the cross. And as she was standing there, she kept asking him about this picture. Who is this man? Was he a very bad man? And he would say, no, he wasn't a bad man. Actually, he was a good man. Well, then why are they crucifying? Why is he in this position? He'd say, stop, I'm trying to do this painting. Don't talk to me about this. And she knowing nothing kept asking, why are the faces around him so evil or angry looking then? Why are, and eventually he just said, okay. And he didn't really care much about the Lord. He just wanted the money for it. So it was a job for him. So he tells her the story of Christ, and eventually she's shocked by all of this. Towards the end, he's just about done her picture as well as this, this other one. She says to him, well, you must love him very much for all that he's done for you. And those words stuck with him, and he couldn't shake it because he realized he didn't really have much love for Christ at all until he did. Christ worked in his heart. I believe this story, you can go look it up another time. Actually, he meets her again and shares the gospel with her. I believe she got saved as it goes. But he made a new picture of Christ and hung that up in a public gallery. And not too long afterwards, there was a young man walking by who was wealthy and had most of his life settled for himself. And on that picture of Christ, the artist had written... All this I've done for thee, what hast thou done for me? At the bottom. And that young man who walked by was named Count Zinzendorf, who, if you know about him, took it as a personal challenge and became the head of the Moravian movement, which sent out missionaries to every corner of the earth. And it was this type of thought. That's what Paul's saying. One died for all. So those who now live because of him, what type of life do they live? Do they live for themselves? Do they live their own life? No. 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. all things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. The connection here is clear. Now if we live because Christ loved us and us to die for us, what type of life do we live, not our old fleshly life that's self-focus and flesh-focus? Paul' saying, "The Christ we know, we don't know him after the flesh." And I don't think he's saying, even though he admits we, do, we did know Christ after the flesh. Uh, he may have known Christ literally on the earth. Um, that, that might be a possibility, but I don't believe that's what Paul's saying here. Paul's pointing out the difference of the natures in their understanding of Christ. How did we look at Christ in the flesh? Just the appearance, without the work of the Spirit, without a changed heart. How did people view Christ? How did they know him then? Well, They knew him just as a man. They knew him so that they wanted to kill him. John tells us the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. How does a person in the flesh know Jesus Christ? They just think he's another guy. Without the Spirit without the work of God, without this excellency that he's been talking about? How, how does anybody know Christ after the flesh? How did Paul know Christ after the flesh? Like the people then, they rejected him, they hated him, they slandered him, they crucified him. Paul essentially did the same till Jesus showed up in his life and then he knew him in a different way. What attitude does the world have that we live in now? Is it any different? That the, they look at Christ, what is the true state of Christians in the world? Is it any different? It's the same as Jesus's was. The spirit of Christ has not changed, nor has the spirit of the world. Christians still live in the world that nailed Jesus to the cross. Jesus would say in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love its own. You, yet because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We've been chosen out of the world and given a different life. A different spirit. We don't know Christ after the flesh anymore. Now our basis of knowledge is through the spirit. As Paul says, that's how we know him now. Which is a totally different lens. We see life in a totally different way. And not only that, it's not only Christ, it's anyone. We don't regard anyone, no one, according to the flesh. The, the basis of how I look at any other human being is now changed because of who Christ is and what he's done in my life. The central thing about them is not how they dress, what color their skin is, what social status they have, how educated or uneducated they are, none of those things matter. It's, do you know the life of God? I now relate to people based on the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood that we have in Christ, the commission that I've been given as a believer. All those other things, if I relate to them on that level, I relate to them according to the flesh. There's a new way I'm supposed to look at people and look at Christ because he has done something new. Verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's a new way that we look at humanity because God has done something new in humanity. Again, this is why if you get saved and you've lived for a while unsaved, your unsaved friends or family members can't understand you because they only know you after the flesh, just like people only knew Jesus after the flesh. And they got offended when they got forced into positions where they had to acknowledge there was something spiritual happening in his life. And people, even in this world, you have a new nature. You've been born again. God changes you. They get annoyed at that. They, they want you to be in the flesh like them. They don't want a new nature to be in your life. At the best, they can acknowledge, man, you have something new, something different. Because God has done something new in us, we become new creations Something totally other than what the world can produce on its own. Only by the work of love and life in God. This new life is a miracle. If you're there at a birth, it's a miracle. People look at a human birth and say, it's a miracle. But this, to be born again, is also a miracle. It's a miracle of life but the type of life that God gives and that only God can give. And just like when a human child is born, they have no history. When you're born again in Jesus Christ, you have no history. That new life that he's given you, it's not all those things in the past. And it still grows, just like a baby isn't even fully aware of all the life that it has. Christians, we're not even fully aware of all the life that we have in him. We experience it before we understand it more. I know a lot of people that were like, I was born again, and I don't even know, I didn't even know what that meant. Just eventually I heard somebody explain it once, and I was like, oh yeah, that's what happened to me. There's there's a reality of life that comes from God before even the theological understanding of what's happening. Jesus does something in us, and all things have become new. It's a beautiful work that he's done. We should recognize this life in us. I hope that you do. Paul, when he tried to explain it in his life, in Galatians 2.20, would say this, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The one who died for me, I died with him. And now he says, Christ lives in me. I live, but Christ lives in me. Essentially, Paul could say, I have no good reason for why I changed from this guy Saul who hated Christians and Jesus Christ to Paul other than Christ lives in me something new happened a new creation God did a work in his own life so i could say again for me to live as Christ and to die as gain that's what life looked like for paul a living christ jesus lives if you're born again in you there is spiritual life that you never had that now is alive in you. It's not perfect, but it's there, and it's growing. Just like a child born, it's not fully developed, but it's there, it's alive, you know it, and it lets you know that it's alive, right? Well, when he says, Christ lives in me, then he lives, he breathes, he speaks, he desires, he moves, he wills, he loves, he hates. There's a change. You can't be truly born again and not have those things. He could say, Christ lives in me. This new creation that we live then becomes the lens that we see all of life through. It gives us compassion for the lost, for those who don't have this life. We want people to know it. And we're not shocked at sinners being sinners anymore because we realize they have no other alternative because that's the only life they have. there's a place that they can find new life, where they can become a new creation. And it gives us a compelling life goal and force that binds us in loyalty and love to Christ in a greater way than even all human fleshly ties. That's, That's why Jesus could say this new creation is so powerful that We don't know anybody after the flesh anymore, and even Christ, to the point where Jesus could say, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus, at some point, will claim to be God and to be the giver of our life and claim the loyalty of that, that my flesh is. And even my flesh and blood is no longer the highest loyalty. What he has done in me, the life that God has placed in me, is higher than the life that I've received from a human mother or father. That's, that's the highest gift that I could be given. And loyalty to him, if it comes in conflict with those things, has to be chief and first and foremost and even our family can become an idol in our life. We know the reality is Christians all over the world today, to be born again and to give your life then to the Lord means I lose my entire family or my friends, or I literally might be threatened to be killed by family members. And Christians have always made these choices. But Paul's making it clear here, no, something incredible has happened. It is incredible in terms of forgiveness but it is also incredible in terms of responsibility. I don't know any man anymore after the flesh. And I certainly don't know Christ that way because I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. And I have certainly the beauty of a new life and forgiveness. And that old life and my sins, God does not hold them against me or see me in them. But there was a new type of commitment that Paul had. And that type of love compelled him. Compelled him to live for Christ in a unique way. So Paul would say, 18, now all things are of God. All this is only possible through the work of God. As Paul had already taught them in chapter 4, verse 6, there's no religious action that makes us right with God. All things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Notice here, Paul does not say that Christ reconciled us to God, that He has reconciled us to himself through Christ. So sometimes we get this picture. There's like an angry Old Testament father God. But then Jesus showed up and made him nicer. So that now we can kind of be around him without worrying too much about it. But Paul says, no, that's not the picture here. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That love was expressed In the giving and the sending of Jesus Christ, God has made a way for man. This is his work. We were enemies of his. We had no goal to reconcile with him. If he didn't step in first, we would have never tried to make our way to him. We would have just lived as enemies of him, whether active or inactive. In terms of actually seeking him. Man couldn't make reconciliation. That's what religion is. Human beings trying to do something to make everything cool with God. But God's or Paul's point here is God saying, no, that's impossible. There's nothing you could have done. Nobody can live a life good enough. Nobody can pray enough. Nobody can do enough good works. God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Man does not make reconciliation. Man, as the enemy of God, experiences reconciliation. It's given to us. Romans five ten. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? Colossians one twenty one. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled. Sometimes, particularly in the world, people get confused as to like what the issue is between human beings and God. Paul was not confused. He's very clear here. You notice that he says God was in Christ, verse 19, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. That, that's the problem between us and God, our trespasses our wickedness, our disobedience. Not only the wicked things we have done, but the good things we have not done. Some people think, like, "Yeah, I haven't done, like, a lot of bad things. but Have you given God what he does deserve? Not even close. You haven't done the good things you've done, you should have done either. We, we fall way short. And there was no way that any human being could bridge that gap. Our trespasses made us enemies of God. And God, not imputing or not counting them against us, has made friends of enemies. He could have justly just judged all humanity. He could have dealt with all the trespasses by just sending another flood and wiping everybody out. But that's not what he's done. Instead, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He reconciled us to himself through his son. Again, people can talk about whether they like that or not, but how else does God deal with evil in the world? And sometimes skeptically, people can bring that up like they actually want God to deal with evil in the world, but nobody really does. They want their evil. How come God, if God's so loving, how come he doesn't deal with this or that? I'll give you a little tip. Always just ask people, how much? How much evil do you want God to deal with? And they're like, all of it. Oh, okay, the evil movies you watch? The evil language that you use? The evil thoughts in your mind? The evil desires in your heart? Do you want to? See, like, we want to decide what's good and evil and, and tell God how to deal with it. But we don't want to acknowledge there's God. And then if there is a God, He's the one who tells us what's evil and what's good. And we actually love our evil. That's the point. We're enemies of God. We don't want God to deal with evil. It's like I said. He can just wipe all evil out. But then that includes us. Somebody thinks they're exempt from that. No, you're evil. <laughs> you're not perfect. We're all broken. But there's a God that decided to love us instead. To send his only son to make reconciliation to deal with evil on the cross. And the reality is, if any person is honest enough, I didn't actually have a choice how I came here, when I came here, what I am, male or female, what my gifts are. None of us had a choice how we entered this world. None of us will have a choice about how we're going out. We have to. I don't get to add years to my life or take them away. The reality is, I realize somebody else is in control of this whole thing. I'm somebody else's property, if I'm honest enough to admit it. Because I'm not my own. Because I don't have the power to control my life. But the person who made me also shows me that they love me. And however this world pans out, I know that that God will act with me in accordance with the spirit that I've seen on the cross. That's what God offers us. His Son making reconciliation for us. It's the glory of man or the doom of man to have been made in God's image to have fellowship with Him. It is what our life will culminate in or it is what will break us ultimately. To live in fellowship, in friendship, or unreconciled and there's no way for fallen man to be reconciled to God except through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and Paul says that he's done that he's done that for us that's who he is and he then tells us twice now these believers are part of this incredible message and good news. He has given us, he says, the ministry of reconciliation, 18 and in 19. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. So what he's now accomplished, he's given us the ministry and the word of that. It's to all of us. What was once the ministry of angels, what no human being could fully understand Angels had to show up in Luke 2. The angel said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. You mean reconciliation is made toward the enemies? There's goodwill from heaven toward earth. Because there's born to you this day. A savior, a reconciler, the one who can make friends of enemies. And our message is good news to anyone who knows they need a savior. We're announcing friendship with God, that God has made it possible. And Paul's making it clear that the same God that worked through Christ to make reconciliation now works through Christians to announce it. That's pretty cool, right? This is, this is what we're a part of. All these people glorying in appearance. Do you realize how far they are from this now? That the God who died on the cross to make reconciliation. Because we could never do it because we were enemies. And to give a life that's a totally new type of life. And make us new creations. The one who did that through Christ. Now says. Go tell the world through Christians. Go tell what He's done for you. Go give them the message that you've come not just to understand intellectually, but you've come to experience as a reality. And probably if we haven't experienced as a reality, we're not going to want to tell many people. This is not a point we should overlook. The gospel's not simply to be taught, it's to be proclaimed. It is to be experienced and shared. John Stott in his work, The Cross of Christ, says the rule should be no appeal without proclamation and no proclamation without appeal. We don't just talk about what Jesus did on the cross so people can understand it. We proclaim it so that people can believe it and receive life. Paul says, the one who made reconciliation has now given you the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation So 20, now then, if that's true, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Since that is true, we are ambassadors for Christ. Whether you realize it or not, you're an ambassador for Christ. And again, an ambassador doesn't come on their own authority or give their own interests. He personally represents the authority and the interests of another person. You're an ambassador typically when you're not in your native homeland, you're somewhere else, again, representing the interests and the authority of America. I'm an American ambassador, I go, and that's what I stand for. Now, if you have an ambassador, not this has ever happened in the history of the world, of course, that uses their position to just further their own interests, we call that corruption. Right. So, as a Christian, if I've been extended the life of God to be a representative of His authority and purposes, and I just take that life and use it for my own interests and purposes, I am corrupt in what I'm doing. Paul's point is, don't you see the privilege that you have been given? You have been given the privilege of being an ambassador for the most important thing that ever happened on the face of the earth, that ever will happen on the face of the earth. And it's the only thing that can actually deal with the issues in people's lives and change them. It's important to remember that. It's also helpful That when I stand before other people who don't want to hear from me or might not like the message, that I don't stand there in my own authority or on my own interests. Sometimes people want to put it to us and you can feel that pressure, right? Oh, so you're saying I'm going to hell? Yeah, people do these things. You know, if you've ever especially had conversations on the street or something, or a professor will throw that out to a kid in class. Oh, you're saying all these other people are going to hell then? And you're like, you're the only one who can say the point is, I'm not saying anything. I'm saying that's what Jesus says. You, you don't have a conflict with me. You have a conflict with Jesus Christ. And like, I know you got a PhD, but he's got an empty tomb. So I'm leaning his way. That's, that's the problem here. You know? And then it becomes a discussion of what does Jesus actually say? It's not about my authority versus anybody else's authority again i'm an ambassador i don't stand here on my own authority i don't have to know all the answers to everything i just give the message right that's all we do his is the authority his is the life his is the purpose and it's not always easy i'm thankful paul he even he asked for prayer he said in ephesians 6 And for me, he was asking for prayer, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly and to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul will say, look, pray for me, that I can speak like I should as an ambassador of Christ, even in chains, he would be thrown in prison for it. That I should speak boldly as I ought to speak. So if you feel like, man, Lord, I know I need to do that, but I need help. All right, join the club. So the Apostle Paul, that's fine. So is every single one of us at times. But the message we have is very simple. Do you notice verse 20, what he says there? Be reconciled to God. That's what the message is. It's incredible because this is what God wants to happen. We're an ambassador, but... As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf. How do you think God the Father and God the Son are looking at people who are unsaved and need life? That's what we should say. Lord, give me your heart to implore with these people the way you would. Paul could say that. That's that's the heart. And the message is, be reconciled to God. And it's passive there in the language. The idea is it's not something that we do. It's something we accept. We embrace God's offer of the free gift in Jesus Christ. If I'm unsaved and I know I'm an enemy of God and I need to be right with God, God has already made things right through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You just need to accept it, be reconciled with God, accept Jesus's work on your behalf believe that God is pleased in the work of his son that God was loving you through Christ on the cross believe that and you're saved it doesn't say feel reconciled right that's what we always we want to you know, that's what Satan wants to get in there immediately. It starts with faith, but then it goes immediately feeling, and I must not have faith if I don't have the right feelings. No, what don't make an idol of your feelings. What does God say? I'm supposed to believe that I have been reconciled by the work of Jesus Christ. And he'll give me the feeling when I need it. That's his promise. First John 5 13 he says, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. Don't make God a liar. Believe the testimony that God the Father has given of his son. That you could be right with God. So we plead, we implore with men, we say, I beg you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. He's done all the work. This is how we first come to Christ and find new life. Paul's teaching them here what it is to be an ambassador. Now, of course, this is contextually most directly to unsaved people or to a mixed multitude. But I do think there's a measure that you can continue to say this to a Christian. Because, remember, God didn't send his son to die on a cross so that we could happily live at a distance from him. He's not okay with that. He loves every single one of us. And he wants us in a close relationship with him. And the way we start that relationship with him through the work of Christ is the way that we have to continue it. And we can forget that. You get caught up in things. There's all types of ways in the world that the the enemy wants to get in between us and forget that we are reconciled to God. You know, people have wonderful movements of the Holy Spirit in their life at times, and they want to do something for the Lord. They get caught up, cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, Given a lot of time of work, focusing, ah, good cause, maybe I'll get back to that. And then it's a few years in, and you're like, ah, this kind of things that I wished in my life, I would have done, I haven't done. Is it even worth it now? I've kind of gone past it. Maybe just chalk it up to stay on the same path. No. Be reconciled to God. Start right where you are. He's a friend of yours. Christ has made that possible. Don't just keep moving forward and ignoring that. There are people who wander away from Christ. They know better. They're like the prodigal son. They had a great father, great home. Nothing to blame it on. They go, riotous living, I've already done this. Should I even go back? I'm worse than people think. Be reconciled to God. He loves you. Christ has already done all the work. There isn't some work that has to happen. Be reconciled to him. Today, you can have it. It's the message that we came to at the beginning. It's the message we continue on. There's some hurt that comes into your life, death, sorrow, tragedy, bitterness, resentment, anger with God can come in. Be reconciled to God. He isn't angry at you. The work is accomplished on the cross. You don't have to fight with him. Your soul can be reconciled to him. The message that we come to in the beginning is the message we continue to walk in. And we all need it at times. So it's good to share with others because it helps remind us where we come from. It's the work of Christ. It's the spirit of the ministry we're supposed to carry. The life that we're supposed to lead. For, Paul says in 21... Summing this all up, giving it the ultimate apologetic here. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's a lot in this verse. Uh, Nobody can explain it all. The divine transaction that happens at the cross remains something of a mystery. Frederick William Faber said this, How can you suffer, O my God, and be the God you are? It is darkness to my intellect, but sunshine to my heart. And in some measure, that's what we all come to. Here's what we do know that Paul states very clearly in this verse. The sin was not his. Christ was made sin. He who knew no sin... The sin was not his, and the righteousness is not ours. We've been given something that we didn't possess. The sin wasn't his. The righteousness was not ours. Jesus took my standing before God and my punishment, my death, so that I could take his standing before God and join in his reward. That's the truth of what it's declaring. How you want to explain it is going to take eternity. But what is declared is clear. This is the truth of it. I don't know all the breakdown of the atoms and the protons and the neutrons and the electrons and the gluons of all of this, right? That's the thing that we learned for years, but the reality of it is, Taken very clearly here. The law demanded a spotless righteousness. The gospel proclaims the free gift of provided righteousness. It was always what the Old Testament said was coming and prophesied about the Messiah. Isaiah 45, 24 says, he shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. Jeremiah 23, 6 says, now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our Righteousness. Daniel nine twenty four speaking of the Messiah, says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. I think we see here, no matter how wicked I think my sin is, is more wicked than I could know. You think you feel guilty for your sin. The reality is, none of us feel guilty enough. How can I measure what my sin against an infinite God costs? I can't measure it. There's no way for anybody to measure it. But how also can it be measured against the infinite life and righteousness and gift and perfection? In Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, I can't measure that either. All I know is that God says it works. This is enough. What God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit do at the cross shows me my sin is incredibly hard to fix, even for God. It shows me that God is holy and he doesn't take sin lightly. That there isn't a place where he's like, ah, God's kind of cool with our sin. No, that it's serious, and in fact, it's more serious than I know. But it also shows me that his love transcends. That his love has overcome that difficulty that was impossible for me. And yes, we believe this in faith. But I think here the, the thing that we're supposed to see even more than just, I'll say, the transaction of it, is the person of it. I think that's what Paul has been trying to show us. Who Christ is, what he has done, the love of God and what's been accomplished. That I'm supposed to respond to the love of the Father and the new life that I have. Through the work of His Son, I think it's possible to lose that emphasis for us. A. W. Tozer, in his book *Born After Midnight*, put it like this: Popular fundamentalist theology has emphasized the utility of the cross rather than the beauty of the One who died on it. The saved man's relation to Christ has been made a contractual instead of personal. The work of Christ has been stressed until it has eclipsed the person of Christ substitution has been allowed to supersede identification. What he did for me seems to be more important than what he is to me. Redemption is seen as an over-the-counter transaction, which we accept, and the whole thing lacks emotional content. But to Paul, the sinner saved by grace, this was no impersonal exchange. This was him able to say, Christ died for me. He gave himself for me. And the life that I live is personally connected to this person. And what is true for me is also true for everyone else. And Paul is amazed that the one who knew no sin, the only one that ever lived, that God the Father, all his thoughts about what he wanted in humanity in creating him, he's the only life that he could ever look at and see all of that reflected back at him perfectly. And that's the one who died for me and for you. The one who never showed God the Father a thought that wasn't pleasing. An act that wasn't pleasing, a word that wasn't pleasing, a desire that wasn't pleasing. The only one who ever walked on the face of the earth to never displease him in body, soul, or spirit was made sin. Saul's sin, our sin, so that we could be reconciled to God. And to Paul, that was not impersonal, nor was it just a theological transaction It was a life reality that compelled him to live as an apostle by the word of God, to suffer for Christ, to live for Christ, to be an ambassador for Christ, and eventually die as a witness for Christ. And I think it's important for us, for me as a pastor, but for any of us who are sons and daughters of God, you could do a business transaction with anybody. But you have to really love somebody to live and die for them. Right? It's easy to exchange some money and to get a transaction done with anybody. But to live for them, to suffer for them, to be patient with them, to be long-suffering, to die for someone, you must really love them to give your life in that way. And Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. To live, not for ourselves, but for him who died for us. You think I'm crazy? Then it's for God. What type of life do I lead? Life that's like his. Do you know who he is? What he's done? That's the life that we've been given. Totally new creation. Something I didn't have at all outside of him. We have been reconciled to God. So now we go out as ambassadors. And we say to the world be reconciled to God in God's stead, in Christ's stead, pleading in their place. Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.10, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who's the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Timothy go tell everybody this is the truth of it so I would just encourage you directly if you're here tonight and your life isn't right with God be reconciled to God you can be reconciled with God tonight or you can choose to leave and make a choice to turn your back to God and not your face that's not what he wants he has made a way for you to come to him This is as much of a setup as a setup could possibly be. He knew you were going to be here tonight, and this is his message for you. And for the rest of us, we should remember what he's done, who he is. And we should gladly want to have that same type of spirit and ministry and message for those that we walk around, those that we see on a daily basis. Those that we say we love and those that we know no longer after the flesh, but now after the spirit. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your love for us. We know that in the ages to come, we're going to learn about your grace and your kindness toward us. Heavenly Father, we pray that your love and that the grace of Christ and that the communion of the Holy Spirit would be with us all. And Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight or anybody listening in that doesn't know you, that they would know tonight that they can be reconciled and that they would know the experience of new life in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.